Good morning once again. Special welcome to those who may be visiting for the first time. And uh, we look forward to looking at into God's Word. This morning we're going to be looking at the topic of marriage. We're doing a series on our statement of faith. And this, uh, this is the last message from our statement of faith. If you go on our website, you'll see what the chapel uh, believes when it comes to God, the, the Word of God, church, and so on, and we end up with marriage. So <clears throat> let's just ask for the Lord's help. Our blessed God, Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the Word of God. We're thankful that uh, I'm not here to invent anything or say anything that isn't founded in your Word, and we're thankful that you have said a lot to us and spoken to us and and uh, but we need your spirit to help us to understand it and to take it in. And so once again, we look to you to help enlighten our minds and our hearts. And uh, we also pray, pray for your special blessing on the children as they gather downstairs. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is uh, what we have on our website. Uh, we believe that marriage was ordained by God as a union only between one man and one woman. Marriage is also symbolic of Christ's relationship with his bride, the church, and as such, is to follow the biblical pattern. Sexuality is a gift from God for enjoyment as well as for procreation. It requires stewardship, which includes reserving sexual intimacy for such a marriage relationship. And then we also have a number of biblical texts. And uh, today, with God's help, I'm just going to take this uh, portion that we have and divide it into four, and this will, this will be our outline today. We believe that marriage was ordained by God. The second point, as a union only between one man and one woman. And thirdly, that marriage is also symbolic of Christ's relationship with his bride, the church, and as such is to follow the biblical pattern. And fourthly, sexuality is a gift from God for enjoyment as well as for procreation. It requires stewardship which includes reserving sexual intimacy for such a marriage relationship. So for each point, we'll look at uh, one major text in the Bible, one or two. There would be many texts, but we're going to select a couple of texts. And for our first point, our first point is this, is that marriage and marriages uh, was ordained by God and is ordained by God. And our main text for this is in Genesis chapter 2, I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 18. And um, I'm reading from the New King James Version. <clears throat> you might have another version. You can either listen or read it on the screen. And uh, <clears throat> But we're here to listen to the Word of God, right? So Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 18. And the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam, uh, and whatever, excuse me. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle 
and to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. For, but for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And he took, and he took, and the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord had, God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Verse 23, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And then we have a passage in Matthew 19, reading from verses from verse 3 to verse 6. Pharisees also came to him, that is Jesus, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together... Let not man separate. <clears throat> so, marriage was ordained by God. We're going to look at six different points, five different points. Something was not good. Something was not complete. In chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 18, we have the first mention of something that is not good in the creation week. We remember that every time God made something, he said it was good, it was very good. But here he said it wasn't good. The idea here was incomplete. There was no appropriate partner for Adam among the animals. And God, who seven times declared various aspects of creation as being good, now declares that it's not good that Adam be without a suitable partner. So God created man not to be a solitary being, but a social one. And Luther comments that Adam did not have the common good that animals had, namely, that they could propagate. For he was alone and had no spouse with whom to have offspring. The term helper is not a derogatory one because it's actually used for God. The sixth day. A lot happened on the sixth day. God brought the animals to Adam to be named and God put Adam into a deep sleep to perform the first surgery. From the sleeping Adam, God removes a rib. And from this rib, God makes the woman. I've heard of some people who are bachelors to the rapture, as we say, and who are, people ask them, when are you going to get married? And they say, well, when God puts me to sleep and takes out a rib. But <laughs> doesn't do that anymore. But there you go. When, this is what he did at creation. When teaching the order of men and women, the Apostle Paul cites this account in 1 Timothy 2.13, for Adam was first born, then Eve, and Paul was clearly accepting Genesis 2 as a historical fact. After creating the woman, God brought her to the man, and Adam was quite happy to meet Eve. Thirdly, we see this one flesh, closest relationship. Verses 24 and 25. This passage explains how Adam and Eve's marriage was the precedent for all marriages to follow. One man, one woman. Heterosexual monogamy. The man leaves his parents 
His main emotional ties and priorities are with his wife. And these ties are so fast that he holds fast to her, literally sticks like glue. The two shall become one flesh. Marriages tend to break up through four different reasons, but essentially what happens is that something comes between the husband and the wife. God says what God, the word says what God has joined together, let no one separate. Could be somebody else, could be an emotional attachment to somebody else, it could be work, could be a hobby, but something comes between a man and a wife. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, verse, chapter 7, verse 2, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. In Exodus 20, verse 17, we read, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Now we look at Jesus in Matthew 19. He cites Genesis chapter 2. In verse 4, he says, he who created them at the beginning... This is God's plan from the beginning of creation. Jesus cites Genesis on marriage. He doesn't say that this was written 4,000 years ago and is no longer valid. Nor does he say this was simply a good story, a good legend. Rather, he takes it as history. He believes in the historicity of the Genesis account. And we believe that this book, we've, we've spoken to this, is God's revelation to mankind. Um... People don't accept it. People don't want to believe it. That's their choice. If you look in the Gospels, there's a lot of people who didn't believe what Jesus said. And he said, if you do believe on me and you trust in me, you'll have eternal life. I was speaking to a man actually yesterday. He told me, oh, the Gospels, they were written. They're not reliable because they were written hundreds of years after the story happened because uh, Peter and John, they were illiterate people and they couldn't have written them. Well, we don't actually know how illiterate or illiterate they were because they had good homeschooling in, a, in those days. But we also know that they spent three years with the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit was there, and we also know that people often use scribes to write down what other people told them to write down. So even if they were illiterate, they could write well, had a scribe to write down what they had to say. So there's lots of proofs for us to easily believe the Word of God, and this is what we believe. We're not here to say uh, anything else but then what we read in the Bible. It's our authority. And then in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, we have the story of the marriage of Cana. And uh, Jesus attends the marriage of Cana, you remember that, where he performed his first sign miracle, changing the water into wine. So Jesus obviously believes in marriage and blesses marriage. So we can say without a shadow of a doubt that God is for marriage. He designed it, he created it, he gave us instructions for it, and let's just think about it. If Almighty God is for marriage and he created it, will he help us in our marriages? Will he help us to uh, get married and have a happy marriage and a successful marriage? Creator God is for marriage. And uh, not everybody gets married, it's not the will of God for everybody and uh, all the time, but God is for marriage, and he'll help you in your marriage, and he'll help you uh, with marriage. He's for it. He invented it. So that's just a, a quick uh, summary of that. A lot could be said, but uh, we're not saying everything about everything, right? Okay, second point. Marriage is only between one man and one woman. 
And our main text that we're going to look at today for this is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. There are a number of texts. This is the one I've chosen for us to look at. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles or watch it on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So this is quite inter it's an interesting passage. And we were thinking this morning already at the Lord's Supper about how the Lord himself incarnated mercy and truth. And the Lord spoke very clearly about a lot of things that are, we could easily say, countercultural today. And we're going to go down the list of these things that uh, God in his word says aren't right and aren't good. And But if someone accepts God's assessment of these behaviors and rejects them and turns to God for forgiveness, then there's forgiveness. And in fact, the church at Corinth was made up of people like this. And I should say, as is our church, right? There's forgiveness in God. But let's just go through this list because we might not exactly know what we're talking about here. <clears throat> These are things that the Word of God points out that are not right, not good for Christians and not good for anybody. Fornication. This is voluntary sexual intercourse between two unmarried persons or two persons not married to each other. Idolatry. Worshipping something other than God. Adultery. Voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and someone other than their lawful spouse. I happened to come across this uh, little quote from Max Lucado. Some of you like his, his writings, and I do as well. He, he wrote this. He suggests this. He's speaking to Christians. He says, make a list. Years ago, a friend gave me this counsel. Make a list of all the lives you would affect by your sexual immorality. I did. Every so often, I reread it. Denilin, I'm assuming is his wife, my three daughters, my son-in-law, my yet-to-be-born grandchildren, every person who has ever read one of my books or heard one of my sermons, my publishing team, our church staff, the list reminds me one act of carnality is a poor exchange for a lifetime of lost legacy. Dads, would you intentionally break the arm of your child? Of course not. Such an action would violate every fiber of your moral being. Yet, if you engage in sexual activity outside of your marriage, you will bring much more pain into the life of your child than with a broken bone. Well put. Homosexuals, nor sodomites, what is it? What sexual desire or behavior directed toward people of one's own sex or gender? Thieves, covetous. Think of Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve had everything in the garden. And Satan came and, and, and tempted them to just want 
something else. And uh, this, this quote comes to my mind. I don't know the total truth of it, but <clears throat> it's been in my mind for a long time. Somebody asked Nelson Rockefeller. Some of you may remember him or know who he was. A very wealthy man. They asked him, how much money does it take to be happy? His answer was, just a little more. <laughs> That's the spirit of covetousness. Drunkards. Uh, we have a generation of young people, and probably even before that, uh, drunking and getting drunk is something people do, but not something for believers. Revilers. What's a reviler? It's not something, a word we use, is it? But it's someone who speaks abusively or contemptuously to or of another person or thing. We're not to be revilers. I'll just say in passing that, uh, you know, we live in a democracy, fair enough, but we're not to revile the government, are they? Uh, extortioners. What's an extortioner? Well, it's someone who compels something of a person or a thing. So we're not, we're not to force people to do things. People do things of their own free will, and we let God uh, work in their hearts. We're not to force people or to, to compel people. And so it is with the truth of God's word. We can't force people to accept God's word. We don't have to. God will do that in their hearts. But <clears throat> we're talking about marriage, being married to one man, between one man and one woman. So it's not between one man and two women or three women or several women or, or vice versa. And it's not between two people of the same sex either. The, the Bible very clearly condemns homosexuality. There's no doubt about it. And everything God says, he says it in love. But the truth is, I'm not going to take the time to read Romans 1, 24 to 32. But we read there just a summary of it, that God has given people up to their passions that are out of control. And God calls this vile passions, unnatural, shameful. And the Apostle Paul also stipulates in verse 32 that we're not to approve of this behavior. Uh, in Genesis 19, verses 1 to 5, God judged Sodom that night, and that is why homosexuality has been referred to as sodomy. And in Leviticus 18, 22, we read, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. So let's be clear. God, in his love, and graciously condemns homosexuality. As a matter of fact, he condemns a lot of behaviors that are commonly practiced in our society. In our society, it's perfectly legal to be a fornicator, an adulterer, an idolater, a drunkard. It's not legal to steal, though, I think, last time I checked, nor to be an extortioner. But people who don't know the Lord <clears throat> are of no motivation to respect the law of God. These behaviors come from a sinful heart and are fairly well accepted in our society. And remember, God doesn't change people's hearts. God gives new hearts. And um, he gives us the strength and the power to live his life. Now, uh, I'm going to put Mike Krizlenicki on the spot. Mike, do you have the air mattress uh, blower thing? Put it in his van. Well, Mike came to my rescue yesterday because uh, he has a, an electric air mattress blower upper, whatever you want to call it. And we, we bought a big beach ball, and uh, we had lots of trying, fun trying to blow it up, you know, or pump it up. And it's a good way to kill yourself, but uh, 
you <laughs> get really red in the face, but you, you know, you need a, but the, the electric uh, pump did it in about 10 seconds. And it made me think of the Christian life. A lot of people try to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit, right? That's one of the questions that we have on our survey when we're going out in the neighborhood. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Some people say, yeah, I did. I got it when I was confirmed. Or they'll say, never heard of the Holy Spirit, like they said in, in Acts 19. We don't know who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is what gives us the power to live the Christian life. That's another way of saying, to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. You can't live the Christian life without the power of God. And all these behaviors that God um, puts before us, can only be lived through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we don't know the Lord and we don't have the power of the Lord, then it just becomes a legalistic endeavor. And Christianity is not a legalistic endeavor because God gives us the strength and the power to do his will. And his law actually becomes promises for us when we have Christ in us. So don't try and blow up a beach ball by blowing into it. You'll hurt yourself. Get a pump. And if you're trying to live the Christian life without Christ, uh, you need the Holy Spirit in your life. You need Christ in your life. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm happy to explain that to you afterwards. So, moving along. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. In Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 33, uh, we studied this text recently on Tuesday nights. So I invite you to listen to the messages on our website or on YouTube. And so I'm not going to read, even read this text today. But there are some points that uh, I've highlighted here from this passage. Unity. God's desire for the church is unity between the church and Christ and between each other. And so in our, in our homes, in our couple, we need to experience the love of God and unity. We need to be full of the Holy Spirit. We can only live this relationship through the power of the indwelling Spirit. When, when the Lord says to be filled with the Holy Spirit, it's not something that is, uh, you know, just for a select few or just something that's unattainable. He, he says to us that right in this passage about marriage, that's where we need the Holy Spirit. We need Christ in our lives every day. And you say, well, Brian, how can I be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, we have to be born again. We have to be a Christian. And the only way I know how to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to take time with God every day, a quiet time, let his word examine my heart, point out things that aren't right that I need to get rid of, confess my sins, ask God to forgive me, show me his will, and give me his strength. We need time every day to get alone with God. Three times a day would be better. And we need to walk with the Lord. If we don't, we're not going to enjoy the fullness of the Spirit, and we're not going to enjoy Christ. The promise is there for us. Mutual submission. Uh, Nancy and I have been married 43 years, and I often mention this to her recently, that she's getting a lot smarter as we get, you know, along. And uh, I'm recognizing more of her talents. And uh, I don't know if it's because she's been living with me or just because I recognize them more. 
But a lot of times she has good ideas and I follow her good ideas, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, and, but there's also, there's mutual submission and there's also a particular submission in love and through the, the grace of God that uh, the man is the head of the wife, uh, not in an abusive way, but in a spiritual way. Men and women are equal before God, but there are different roles, and there are certain. The man has the the stated um, responsibility to search out God's will and to listen to God and get God's direction and be a leader, and uh, so that's a responsibility that men have. Now, I, I want us to focus in on this one item that says that uh, we are to. Husbands, in, in, in uh, chapter 5, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands, love your wives. How did Christ love the church? Well, we can think just offhand, he died for her, he served her, he sanctified her, he stayed the course. I want us to focus on that a little bit today. And he submitted to his Father's will at all times. What does it mean he stayed the course? I'm going to read you a text from uh, Luke 24, verses 33 to 37. I don't have it on the screen, so listen up. When they had come to the place called Calvary, there they, were, they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Forgiveness, if you've talked to anybody who's been married for any length of time, forgiveness is probably one of the key elements of, of getting along in marriage. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So they were telling him to come down off the cross. You don't have to put up with that. You're, you're the son of God. Just get out of there and drop it. And But did Christ come down off the cross? No. He, he suffered the shame and the, uh, the sorrow and the curse of, of, of the cross. That's how Christ loved the church. So there's, there's a lesson for us there too, isn't there? Now, <clears throat> Timothy Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, he cites the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, give him credit, and Kierkegaard writes of three possible outlooks on life, what he calls the aesthetic, the ethical, and the religious. He says that all of us are born esthetes. Uh, that word might not be part of your working capital. It wasn't part of mine. I had to look it up. But here it is, esthetes, and I got the right pronunciation. We're all esthetes. And we only become ethical or religious through our choices. I'm going to explain it. The aesthete doesn't really ask whether something is good or bad, but only whether it's interesting. Everything is judged as to whether it is fascinating, thrilling, exciting, and entertaining. So the person living with the, with the aesthetic life is not the master of himself at all. In fact, he's leading an accidental life. His temperament, tastes, feelings, and impulses completely drive him. 
Looking at it another way, the person dominated by aesthetic sensibility is controlled by circumstances. If a wife loses her beautiful countenance, her husband puts on the pounds, the aesthete begins to look around for someone more beautiful. If a spouse develops a debilitating illness, the aesthete begins to feel that life is pointless. But says Kierkegaard, such a person is completely controlled by his circumstances. The only way for you to be truly free is to link your feeling to an obligation. Only if you commit yourself to loving in action, day in and day out, even when feelings and circumstances are in flux, can you truly be an individual and not a pawn of outside forces? Also, only if you maintain your love for someone when it is not thrilling, can you be said to be actually loving a person? The aesthete does not really love the person. He or she loves the feelings, the thrills, the ego rush, and the experiences that the other person brings. The proof of that is that when these, those things are gone, the aesthete has no abiding care of concern for the other. We can see that quite readily in our society, right? I don't need to elaborate that for you. Jesus stayed the course, and we're called to stay the course when we get married, regardless of what happens, for better or for worse, right? Used to be in the vows. <laughs> and Jesus stayed the course, and guess what? God will help us stay the course when we need his strength to do that. Now, I should mention just in parenthesis that we plan on the will of the Lord to run a seminar based on Timothy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. It happens to be a great Bible study, good for singles and married people and people of all ages. Everyone's welcome to attend, and we hope to do this, Lord willing, using the same format we used last year for the... Uh, of the parenting seminar. So Sundays at uh, one from one to two, starting uh, in mid-October. So stay tuned. Video, half hour video, half hour discussion groups. <clears throat> so when we stay the course in our marriages, we reflect how Christ stayed the course, right? Christ stayed the course. And it wasn't... Um, it wasn't easy for him, but he did. And that's how husbands are supposed to love their wives. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Point four, sexuality is a gift from God for enjoyment as well as for procreation. It requires stewardship, which includes reserving sexual intimacy for such a marriage relationship. What is stewardship, by the way? It's the responsible overseeing and protection of something considered worth caring for and preserving. So turn with me, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'll give you time to find it. If you don't have a Bible, there, there should be one in the, on your seat or the seat in front of you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There are many texts that we could read in this regard, but this is the one I've chosen to read. Today, it's very clear. Remember, we're, we're telling the truth in love here, right? Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the, in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you have received from us how you ought to walk and please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through 
the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such. And we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who is also given of his Holy Spirit, given us his Holy Spirit. So verse 4, what does it mean? Know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. It means to possess your own body. <clears throat> the ESV says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. In other words, we're told that we need to control our sexuality and not be drawn away and, and uh, <clears throat> to inappropriate uses of it. If you were here on Tuesday nights, and by the way, we have wonderful studies on Tuesday nights, uh, for those of you who aren't in the habit of coming, and one of our brothers, who will remain nameless, he talked about, I'll say, a friend of his who started a grass fire, and the grass fire got out of control. And uh, we were all sweating there while watching him explain how the grass fire got out of control, and so on, if some of you remember. Well, sexuality can be like a fire. And if we don't keep it under control, it can get out of control, and cause lots of damage. In the framework of marriage, it's a wonderful blessing. Out of control, it can cause great damage. This is what he's saying here. And then he goes on to say, in verse uh, 6, very interesting comment, he says that no one take advantage and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such. Bill MacDonald, in his commentary on this, he writes this, in other words, a Christian man must not go beyond the bounds of marriage and defraud a brother by stealing the affections of, a, of the brother's wife. Though, though these offenses are not generally punished in criminal courts today, the Lord is the avenger of all such. Sexual sins bring on a terrible harvest of physical and mental disorders in this life. But these are nothing compared to their eternal consequences if they are not confessed and forgiven. God, Paul had forewarned the Thessalonians of this. So, in summary, marriage was ordained by God. God is, God is for marriage. And he will help us. Almighty, omniscient, all-powerful, infinite God is for marriage. He's for our marriage. He's for your marriage. And we can go to him. We can pray to him for help. And he will help us. God is uh, close by. And he will help us if we go to him and pray to him. Two, marriage is only between one man and one woman. We're not for adultery <laughs> or fornication. We're against it. And we're not for homosexuality. The Bible is very clear there. Three, marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. We're to stay the course in our marriages. And uh, when we don't, it's not a very good picture of Christ and the church. Christ stayed the course. We're to stay the course. Four, sexuality is a gift from God. 
and we need to keep it under control. May God bless his word to our hearts. Amen. Our blessed God, Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the clarity of your word. We're thankful that we don't have to look elsewhere for direction. We're thankful for marriage. We're thankful that you bless it and make it a wonderful, a wonderful experience. And we're thankful for your help to lead the Christian life as we ought, by your grace and your truth. So, Lord, I just pray that you will bless your word to our hearts today. And I thank you for this time we've had looking at it. In Jesus' precious name, amen.